Our scripture reading this morning comes from first the prophecy of Ezekiel, and then afterwards from the gospel according to John. First we'll read Ezekiel 47, the, verse, the first 12 verses. Here the prophet Ezekiel has been receiving a vision of the new temple. I don't know if the Pew Bibles match this uh, page number, but this is page 931 in this ESV. Ezekiel 47, beginning at verse 1. Then he, so the he here is a messenger from God who is showing all of these things to Ezekiel. So then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from from below the threshold of the temple, Toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand. And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enedglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So far from Ezekiel. We'll turn now to John chapter 7. We're going to read the verses 25 through 39 and our our text is contained In those verses, our text is the verses 37 through 39. 
here Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and at this time he is publicly teaching in the temple. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 25, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We'll respond to the reading of God's Word with Psalm 63, stanzas 1 and 3. The text for this morning is John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. We'll read that portion once more. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. After the sermon, we will sing in response Psalm 65, stanzas 3, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus in our text, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now it might be true of some of you, I know it was true of me, that when you hear the sayings of Jesus, sayings like this one, you might think, you know, I've heard this one before. This is another way of saying that we shouldn't seek our salvation or our well-being in anyone or anything except Jesus. Salvation is from Him alone. And this can be a bit of a pitfall for people who have always been Christians. We might get a little bit lazy sometimes, and we think that we have a lot of these sayings figured out by now. As the people of God, and as some of you might be, people who are 10th generation-ish people of God, people who have been hearing the sayings of Jesus since we were infants, sometimes we think, I've heard this one, you know, I know what this means. We've arrived, we're mature Christians. We know that our life is in Christ. We know that we have nothing in ourselves to offer God. Christ is our salvation. Christ fills us up. Yes, all of these things are true. And we have to know these things very well. And if we've grown up in the church, then we do know these things very well. But we ought to slow down, too. We ought to slow down and listen to what God is telling us. If we do, we learn that there is such a richness to these words of Jesus in our text. If we slow down and really think about what he's teaching here, what he's calling us to do today, we become so aware again of how badly we need Jesus Christ. We discover again how awesome it is that we are able to become partakers of Christ, that we're able to be united with Him. And we discover again how necessary it is that we continue to grow and mature in Him. Not just to arrive at a state of having salvation, at a state of being forgiven, a state where we're secure and now we expect what's coming in the future, eternal life, But even further yet, we discover again how our life changes, how our life is able to flourish when we are in Christ. How does this saying of Jesus affect how you live in the coming week? How do you live now that you have access to living water? How do you live now that you have taken a drink and now that your life has been saved? The word of the Lord comes to us this morning in this way. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus offers life-giving water. And we'll see three aspects of this. First, we'll see that this water quenches thirst. We'll see second, that this water flows from the believer. And finally, that this water is the Spirit of Christ. So first, this water quenches thirst. Jesus very loudly makes this announcement about himself at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And he does this with a lot of urgency. He has to say this here, at this time, in this place. He stands up in front of everybody and proclaims it very publicly. 
And when we understand how dangerous it was for Jesus to do this, then we understand something of the urgency. This proclamation was a matter of life and death for his hearers. If we look back at the beginning of our chapter, we can see that earlier Jesus had decided that he wasn't going to go to the feast in Jerusalem. He had been discussing this with his brothers. His brother said, you need to come. And he said, I'm not going to go right now. He didn't want to go to Judea because the leaders were looking for a way to kill him. And apparently this was very well known as we saw in our scripture reading. It was surprising to a lot of people that Jesus would be standing there in public teaching the people. They thought, hey, what's he doing here? Why is he... Why is he teaching like this in in full view of anybody? What does this mean? Does this mean that the leaders have finally decided among themselves that he's the Messiah? Is that why he's allowed to do this? Well, no. They haven't decided that. We know that they do not believe that he's the Messiah. They still want to kill him. But for some reason, Jesus changed his mind about going. Now, we know that Jesus isn't fickle. He doesn't change his mind easily. So he must have been prompted somehow by his father to go, and he went in obedience to him and in great risk of his own life too, humanly speaking. So he teaches here at the festival. He proclaims these things about himself, and in doing so, he's accelerating his course toward the cross. So now, why does Jesus say what he does on the last and the greatest day of this feast? Why does he speak about water and thirst here? This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Shouldn't this be about about booths, about tents? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles actually had a lot to do with water. It was a feast where they commemorated God's provision, God's care over Israel during the time that they were in the desert. They remembered and they celebrated how in the middle of this sandy desert, this dry place, God provided them with manna for them to eat. But even more importantly, here at the feast, they remembered how God provided them with water how he miraculously quenched their thirst when there was no water around. The people of Israel, so often while they were in the desert, were, were worried. They were, they were convinced that they would all die of thirst. And the Lord proved his goodness and his purpose for them by miraculously and lovingly giving them water. This was commemorated at the Feast of Tabernacles. Today, if you go to large cities where there's a large concentration of Jewish people, you can even see them commemorating this feast, even on the sides of really tall condo buildings in cities like New York or even here in Toronto. You can see tents being pitched on balconies on the outside of skyscrapers at the end of September. And... Jews who are observing this this festival will sleep out on their balconies all week, just like these people did at this time in Jerusalem. For that week of the feast, the people came to Jerusalem and built little huts and lived in those huts for 
for that week, the same way that their forefathers did for those 40 years in the desert. And every day of the feast, a pitcher of water was filled up from the pool of Siloam, and then it was carried in a grand procession from there all the way up to the temple. And that pitcher of water was poured out over the altar. This pouring out of water reminded the people of God what He did for them. He turned bitter waters sweet so that they could drink from them. And twice He made water flow out of a rock. And this is the point. It was impossible for Israel to survive in the desert unless God miraculously kept them alive. God gave them life-giving water. And this is what was on the hearts of the people at the feast. Remember how our God gives water in dry places. And it's here, it's in this place that Jesus proclaims, If you are thirsty, if you're thirsty, come to me. Jesus said something similar to this in John chapter 4. He said it to the woman, Whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Jesus teaches the people that He is the true bread from heaven, and here He teaches that He is the water of life. At this feast, the people are looking back. They're remembering the way that God saved their lives with water, and now Jesus is saying, you need to look at me. Look at me. God providing water in the desert in that miraculous way, was a tool. It was a tool that taught about salvation in Christ. And now Jesus is declaring to them that He is the fulfillment of this feast. He says, you people have been celebrating this feast for hundreds of years. Celebrating this feast. This feast has been getting you ready for me. Jesus Christ is what water from the rock was really about. Paul teaches this in in 1 Corinthians 10. There we read, When Israel ate manna and drank water in the desert, they were eating and drinking spiritual food and drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. When Israel drank from the rock in the desert, already at that time they were enjoying communion with God and experiencing salvation in Him that would be secured in Christ. Now here He is. And now He's proclaiming, I am the rock that quenches your thirst. I am the rock that saves your life. I am the rock that keeps you from dying in the desert. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, we could try to come up with a good analogy for how to be sustained in this life, but God already gave the perfect metaphor here, water in the desert. Just as it was impossible for Israel to survive in the desert unless God gave a miracle of water, in the same way, we need water from God. We need life from God or we cannot survive. We can't survive. We cannot survive if we don't 
partake if we don't drink the gift of Jesus Christ. And that's because this world is broken. It's dying. It's dry. People are infected with death. Nobody, nobody escapes death if they seek life in this world. Think again about what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. What does that mean? Well, here's the truth about being human. Everybody who lives on this earth is thirsty. Yes, in the literal sense, everybody needs water or they'll die. But in the eternal sense, in the spiritual sense, in our souls, everyone is thirsty for something. Water is the stand-in for whatever it is that can make you fulfilled as a human. Everybody has a thirst for that emotion, that sensation, that feeling of being fulfilled. And when you don't know God, you have to try to come up with something that, that might fulfill. This is the anthem of our time, isn't it? Create your own purpose for your life. Whatever it is, you have to come up with this yourself. Put a goal out there and go get it. Be fulfilled with your career. Be fulfilled with having children. It's a pretty selfish reason to have children, actually. Be fulfilled with the pursuit of excellence. Whatever it is, the point is, we all have this urge for fulfillment. Maybe you've recently heard the name Anthony Bourdain. He died last June. He was a world-famous chef. He was a celebrity chef. He was a wildly successful author. He made a career, a, a television career, out of going around the world and sampling every fine thing, especially food and drink, every fine thing that this world has to offer. Every luxurious thing on the planet was there for him to pluck. He was wealthy. He was successful. He was rich. He, he, he had whatever he wanted. And last June, he committed suicide. And this was absolutely shocking to everybody who knew and who loved Anthony Bourdain. Why would he do this at the pinnacle of his career? Suicide seems to be too common for really thoughtful, successful artists who attain everything that they've ever pursued. And we can understand how this happens. The chase for excellence keeps you alive because there's hope. There's hope that someday after attaining the thing that you're chasing, you're going to be fulfilled. You're going to feel like you have finally accomplished the thing that you have been designed for. The problem is, after grasping everything that this world has to offer, after climbing every mountain, there is emptiness. There's a hole. There's a hole that cannot be fulfilled. It can't be filled because it's what some people call a God-shaped hole. Only God can satisfy it. When people have everything that can be earned on this earth, when they have it all, 
they realize that they're still thirsty for something, something major. They don't know what it is. They can't get it. And that's when despair comes. And death is the only escape from that kind of thirst. But here comes Jesus. And Jesus says, let anyone, anyone who is thirsty, and that's everybody, everybody's thirsty. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, let him drink. Whoever drinks the water that Jesus gives will never be thirsty again, ever. Jesus offers real satisfaction. It's not a counterfeit. Whatever longing we have in our hearts for that fulfillment, whatever it is, it was put there by design. God created us with that longing in our hearts. God designed us to yearn for Him. There's no better desire. And God satisfies our desires with His fellowship, with His communion, His goodness. God fills us up with Himself. That's His promise. There's no substitute for a true thirst for God. And God promises that in Christ, you will be more fulfilled than any career, any food, any drink, or any other earthly pursuit could ever bring. And it's not merely a matter of having that pleasant feeling, right? That feeling of being fulfilled. The feeling of satisfaction. It is that, but it's so much more than that. It's a matter of life and death. If you fail to come to Jesus and drink, you will eternally die of thirst. We know this, right? We know that God must be our greatest desire. But we still fall into that. We still let ourselves thirst for what the world offers. We might think that, you know, if only I had that certain job, if only I accomplished X before I was this old, if only such and such a thing happened in my life, then I would, then everything would be all right. We have to resist those things, brothers and sisters. We have to consider all of these earthly things for their real value. If we desire God most of all, and if we put all earthly things into their proper place where they are directed toward God's glory, well then you have assurance. You have the promise from Christ Himself that you will not experience unfulfilled longing. If God is your highest joy, then your desires will be fulfilled. That's a promise. Your life is full in Jesus Christ and your thirst is quenched. But Jesus guarantees something even richer than that. Not only will you be satisfied, not only will you survive eternally, but when you drink from this water, this water will overflow and it will change your nature. And that's our second point. This water flows from the believer. Our scripture reading this morning was from Ezekiel 47. We haven't really 
talked about that yet. How does that connect to Jesus' words in our text? Well, what do we see there? Ezekiel saw a vision of the new temple, and there was water trickling out of it, and as it was flowing out of the temple, it was growing wider and wider and deeper and deeper until it was this beautiful, cool, refreshing, enormous river that produced all kinds of life. Fish, everything. Even in the most dead places, like the Dead Sea, where nothing grows. It's impossible for things to grow in the Dead Sea. There's just so much salt there. Even there, life is springing out of the ground. And that's because the water is flowing from the temple. Now, if we consider that Christ is the one who gives this water, and if we remember that often Christ refers to himself as the temple, then it seems that this is kind of just an extension of the first point. Christ is the one who gives life, and he does it really fully. But look at our text. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them, from within their hearts. So this is different. So we learn here that the people of God become a source of life in this world. How is that? Well, let's consider what we actually become when we are united to Christ, when we share in Him, when we're partakers of Christ. We are called temples of the Holy Spirit. Temples. That's each one of us. And as the church, all of us together are the body of Christ. God doesn't just visit us or dwell among us. No, God dwells permanently inside His people. Each one of us, but also as the church, we have become the body of Christ and the new temple of God. God dwells within us. So what does that teach us about what we see in Ezekiel? Well, we learn that life-giving water flows somehow from us, from the temple of God, and this water spreads life in the world. Even in the most dead places in the world, our water flows there and causes life. That's a major thing. This is a huge reversal from what we see in the Old Testament, from what we are without Christ. Without Christ, the only thing that we can spread is death and impurity. That's what all of those Old Testament laws taught. There are a thousand ways to become unclean, and people spread it one person to another. People are contagious with death and uncleanness. But now, this is different. We're contagious with life. Our new nature in Christ is that we infect the world with life and holiness. Instead of being defiled by the world, we spread life in the world. So we learn that somehow we have to have an effect on the world, on our community. Our contact with others should result in new life. Well, how does this happen? How can we do something like that? Well, number one, we have to see to it that the gospel goes out. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And by God's grace, we have been able to be active in this in various missions. We're able to support missionaries in many parts of the world as a federation, and we can praise and thank God that he has given us what we need to be able to support this work. And this should be our constant prayer, even here in Canada. It should be our constant prayer for the kingdom of God to be breaking out over this world. But there's something a bit deeper that we have to consider. The fact that we have Christ's life-giving water means that our very nature has changed. It's not that we merely enjoy this new status as the people of God, and now we, well, because we're very thankful for this, we should try to drum up some enthusiasm for sharing this with the world because we should probably try to show our gratitude. No, it's more than that. This love and concern for the lost this desire to see God's renewing work spread in the world, it's in our very nature. And we even become instruments of God in His work. So we have to ask ourselves all the time, how are we living up to our new nature? What are we doing with the surplus of living water that Christ has promised? Because this is something that He guaranteed in our text. Whoever believes in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's a guarantee. And this water won't just, you know, overflow and spill on the ground and become useless. No, this water brings life. This is all the miraculous work of God, brothers and sisters. But it's also clear here that he intends to use each one of us as a spreader of life in all different ways. Not every single person is called to be an author or a Christian apologist or a preacher or a missionary. God gives different tools, but he gives them to everybody. It means that every single one of us, somehow in their own way, is a spreader of life. We must be a blessing to people with whom we come into contact. As individual believers but also as the church, as the body of Christ. We have been given the water of life, and now we have eternal life. And it's a genuine miracle that we believe in Him, that we, that we have this life, that we do expect to live eternally. How amazed are we by this miracle? Imagine that when you share the truth of what has happened to you, when you share that with somebody and they believe in Jesus Christ, they come to Christ and drink, that new life appears. Before that time, there was, there was deadness. They were as dead as, as a skeleton. And God works faith in them, sometimes through you, and new life appears. The canons of Dort describe this regeneration, this beginning to believe as a miracle, as awesome as creation itself. It's as powerful as when God spoke this universe into being. It's as awesome and as powerful as the resurrection of the dead. That's what's going... This is the miracle that we see before us. All of these people sitting here, believing in God. This is as miraculous as somebody, a a dead body coming to life. 
Are you excited and eager to have that kind of miraculous effect on the world? Or are we just happy and, and comfortable where we are, clinging to our tradition ourselves? If we're comfortable and we're uninterested in spreading life in the world, then we have to understand that that is against the new life-giving nature that we have in Christ. And if we find ourselves lacking in this, then we are exhorted. We are exhorted to pray. Be constant in prayer in this. We ask our Father to work in us by His Spirit. Work in us by His Spirit so that we understand, we realize what we've been given and that we might be overcome with thankfulness and eagerness to let His blessings flow through us, to be an instrument in His hands. We come to our third point, that this water is the Spirit of Christ. John explains here that Jesus was predicting Pentecost, the time when Christ would pour out His Spirit on all believers. Now our text might pose a little bit of difficulty for us. If we read carefully, well, we see in verse 39 that those who believed in Christ would later receive the Holy Spirit. And this might be difficult for us because we know that the very act of believing in Christ is because of the softening of our hearts, which is only the Spirit's work. No person can can make faith and belief in Christ just well up from, from themselves. How can people believe in Christ and then later receive His Spirit? Well, congregation, that is true. No one can even begin to believe in Jesus Christ without the powerful work of the Spirit in the heart. So, those who believed in Christ, we have to understand were already experiencing the influence of God in their hearts. But something greater is worked in their hearts. Something greater is worked in believers after Pentecost. Believers are able to experience a fellowship with God that isn't possible before. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit blossoms in a way that it couldn't have blossomed before. And it couldn't blossom before that because our sin hadn't been dealt with yet. Jesus had not yet in history secured the victory yet. At that time, Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now, because he paid for our sins, because atonement has been made, because he ascended into heaven, now he gives his Holy Spirit to his people. And the Spirit of Christ is with us always. And he is the source of life where there was only death before. And now he breaks out into the world. We might also have a little bit of difficulty imagining this, this breaking out into the world, this new life filling the world. Because we might take it as a starting point that, well, we are the people of God, and in our own lifetime so far, we haven't, with our own eyes, 
witnessed an explosion of life. But consider what it took for you to be called the people of God. When this gospel was written, all the life that had been sprouted so far was contained to a little geographical area around the Mediterranean Sea. But it reached our grandparents, didn't it? It reached us. We're not Israelites. We're not Jews. We are, we're Gentiles. We were, you know, lost people. But the gospel came to our grandparents and great-grandparents. Think about that. How much life has the Spirit of Christ created in the world up to this time? The fact that you are all sitting here is an amazing testimony to, to that fact. So we consider the magnitude of the harvest that is growing right now all over this world. But we also consider the fruit in our own lives. We have been given the Spirit of Christ, and He is the source of our own faith, our belief. And we're also promised growth, maturity in His Spirit. The fact that we enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is a tremendous blessing. Sometimes we might minimize that. Sometimes we might wish that Jesus himself in his body would be here with us. We might think that our faith would just be unshakable if only we could meet Jesus in person and know him the way his disciples did. Well, that is simply false. It's incorrect. In the previous chapter, maybe later you might have a little time to look back at chapter 6, In the previous chapter in John, we see that Jesus had a whole band of disciples, disciples that knew him personally, that heard his wisdom from his own mouth. They saw his miracles, and they deserted him. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't have the Spirit of Christ. We have been given the fellowship with Jesus by His Spirit. And that's something we should all remember. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us is the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus needed to depart from this earth in His body so that He could pour His Spirit out in us, into our hearts. We have His Spirit. That's the only explanation for the miracle that we are all gathered here for worship this morning. It's a miracle that we are alive. And we not only have the guarantee of eternal life, but we also have the promise that the Holy Spirit who lives in us is equipping us, equipping us to shine, to be beacons of of light, to be signs of hope for this world. There are still a lot of dead and dying places on this earth. And Jesus has promised, He's promised that His church, His temple, are vessels of His water. What an exciting thing to know that God is busy in this world and we are a big part of that. May it be our prayer and our commitment to do the work that He has prepared us to do. And may we be ready to praise and glorify Him for quenching the thirst of the world. Amen.